Again? Good morning again. Okay, you can play with the babies after the service. Good morning, Chris. So, so the idea was that um, during Lent, we would do a brief overview of church history. And this is actually now going to be a little bit briefer because we missed last week and because today is in turbo mode. Uh, so let me try to get across the most important things about the first thousand years of church history in five minutes. Uh, incidentally, coming up next week, uh, I'll be on again, and then on the 15th, Joe is going to be preaching about the Reformation, and then we're going to have, as we occasionally do, a special bonus extra sermon after the service on the 15th. I will talk about the Anglican Reformation, for those of you who never got enough uh, when the Tudors was on, and you want to hear some more about that. So, uh, the t- title of this morning's sermon is The Parting of the Ways, Parts 1 and Following, and in a lot of ways, the partings of the ways is really what church history is. It's a story of people who are claiming to be followers of Jesus parting ways from one another. Sometimes they're parting ways because they are going off to start a new initiative, and they're parting ways with the blessing of the people that they're departing from. Sometimes it's a parting of the ways because people can't see eye to eye and it's going to be most effective for them to be doing ministry in different kinds of different places or maybe in different ways. Sometimes it's a parting of the ways because people can't get along and there are political pressures on them to separate. Sometimes it's partings of the ways because it is absolutely necessary that ways be parted, that People go forward as God is leading and that they leave behind a way that he's not. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. In future weeks, I think we're going to, we're going to be talking about partings of the ways that may not have been necessary, at least from a theological perspective, or, or, or partings of the ways that, that perhaps may even have been averted if people had been more cool-headed or godly or less influenced by other pressures. But, but this morning, uh, in, in the very earliest centuries of the church, I think we need to look at some partings of the ways that absolutely were necessary, partings of the ways that had to happen in order for the church faithfully to be the church. And the very first of those, of course, was the parting of the ways between church and synagogue. This fundamentally is what separated the church from the Jewish milieu in which it came up. Not that the church stopped being Jewish. Uh, Jesus, of course, was and is Jewish, his disciples were Jewish, and his earliest followers, most of them were Jewish. But what developed as the gospel spread and as the church developed, as more and more churches were planted, was this church, this movement, gained a following among Gentiles, among people who weren't Jewish. At the same time, the church among people who were Jewish came into increasing conflict and tension with Jewish neighbors who did not believe that Jesus was, in fact, Messiah, that he was, in fact, Israel's deliverer. And it makes perfect sense, actually, that somebody like the Apostle Paul, when he would roll into town, into, say, Corinth, uh, an important city in in uh, in the Roman Empire at the time, and sort of like rolling into Philadelphia or or, uh, uh, into Boston and, and he shows up, and, and he was a student of Rabbi Gamliel. He was a, a, a distinguished young rabbi, and so it makes sense that he would be invited to speak. 
And then when he got up and spoke in the synagogue and said Jesus was Messiah, in a lot of ways it also makes sense that he would be run out of town and beaten up because the understanding of Jewish leaders at the time and of of leading rabbis was that Jesus was not Messiah, could not be Messiah because he didn't do certain things they expected him to do. And so although the church began as a movement within Judaism, essentially as a sect within Judaism that recognized this Galilean carpenter as Messiah, it, it became clear within the span of just a few decades that it was not going to be sustainable for the church to remain a sect or a movement within Judaism. The, the understanding of who Jesus was was simply uh, going, to, going to have to go one way or the other. Ultimately, fences get to be uncomfortable places to sit on. And, and so it was necessary that the church and the synagogue parted ways. In, at times, that happened with more peace uh, than others. But it was necessary that the church affirm, yes, this Jesus thing is not optional. And you see that reflected in the sermons in the Acts of the Apostles, for example, as well as in the other writings of the New Testament. Every time somebody gets up in Acts and starts sharing about Jesus and telling the story of Jesus, incidentally, these are always Jewish folks standing up and telling mostly their fellow Jews about Jesus. And the conclusion to these sermons is never but if you don't think Jesus is Messiah, that's totally fine. You can just kind of go back doing the sacrifices in the temple and go back to the synagogue and kind of do your Jewish thing that way, and that's fine. We'll just do our Jewish thing with Jesus. None of the sermons and acts ends up at that place. They're always saying, no, God has made this Jesus, both Lord and Messiah, and you have to treat him that way. It's not like you have the option of treating the president as the president. You may have preferred that somebody else won the last election, but you don't get to act like Mitt Romney's president. So there had to be a parting of the ways from the synagogue, and there also had to be a parting of the ways from heretics, from heresies, from false doctrines about Jesus. One of the first ones that popped up was known as Marcionism, and really this idea of Marcionism was that the God of the Old Testament was a lesser God that in fact Jesus was pointing to a new way of being that was superior to that revealed in the Old Testament, superior to that expressed in Judaism. And Marcion uh, picked and chose his books of the New Testament. He only liked Luke's gospel, and he edited that. He only liked Paul's letters, and only some of them. As far as he was concerned, the rest of it was a bunch of Jewish claptrap. And the church very clearly renounced that idea. It it renounced the idea that you can somehow jettison the past, the idea that you can uproot the Christian faith from the Jewish soil in which it grew, the idea that Jesus being Israel's Messiah was necessary to understanding the whole thing. And so the reason that we as Christians have in our Bibles, not just the New Testament, although if you want to be cheap and hand out a bunch of them, you can just buy New Testaments. But the reason we have this whole first three quarters of the thing is that we believe this is the Word of God, that this is important. And we believe that, incidentally, because Jesus said that. Jesus treated it that way. If you look at everything Jesus said, when I took Christology in seminary, our very first exercise was to go through the Gospels and look at every time Jesus referred to or alluded to Scripture and how he talked about it. And and Jesus clearly had a view of the Old Testament that this was God's Word, that it was 
a gift to God's people and that it was true, that it was real, and that, had, that, that it had to be followed. And so the church, because of what Jesus has said, has, has affirmed the same. And we early on had to reject the idea that you get to pick and choose which parts of this you like, which parts of this fit the idea of how God ought to be. And that was Marcion's thing. He thought the God of the Old Testament was grubby, uh, that he was way too involved in the, the muck of, of life. And, you know, in Marston's idea, uh, 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 the, his idea of God would, would be that he would just create out of thin air, not that he would take dirt and blow life into it. So the church rejected that. And the church rejected a number of other heresies, and I'll just mention the, the most important one, which I think is, uh, is known as Arianism. I don't think it's known as Arianism. It is. I think it's the most important one. And Arianism, which survives today, by the way, in, in the Jehovah's Witnesses, is, is the idea that Jesus is less than God, less than fully God. The Arians believe Jesus is divine, but that God created him. He's the greatest of all creation, but he was created. They, the, the classic line of the Arians, there was a time when he was not. And therefore, Jesus is not fully God, as God the Father is God. And one of the most important of the ecumenical councils, that's when, when the whole bunch of bishops got together and hashed out doctrine, was the Council of Nicaea in 325. Now, you may have had somebody tell you what happened in 325 was Constantine got all the bishops together and made them vote on what Jesus was like. This is not what happened at the Council of Nicaea. Constantine did get them all together. He was emperor. He could get all the bishops together if he wanted to. Uh, he wanted to, and he also incidentally paid for them all to get there. It's not like he made them show up on their own dime, which I'm sure they appreciated. But, but at the Council of Nicaea, they had to consider these teachings of this priest, this guy named Arius, who, who was claiming that Jesus was not fully God. He was divine, but not fully God. And w when the bishops got together, they, they discussed these teachings. Arius was there himself, and, and those uh, bishops that, that aligned with him were there. And they discussed, they hashed this stuff out, and they concluded that, no, this, this is not consistent with what Scripture reveals about what Jesus is like. This is not consistent with how Jesus could fully be a, a self-sacrifice of God on our behalf. If he's only divine and not fully God, then it doesn't really work. The equation doesn't add up. And so at Nicaea in 325, the, the bishops produced, in fact, the, the, the kernel of the Nicene Creed that we uh, recite, that, that we affirm when we take communion here, and uh, many, many churches do when they take communion. It's a more robust creed. It's more theologically developed than the Apostles' Creed, which is a baptismal creed. Uh, and then a little bit later in 381 at the Council of Constantinople that the Nicene Creed was, was developed further in terms of what it affirms about the Holy Spirit because the question had arisen, well, can the Holy Spirit be worshipped as God? Is the Holy Spirit fully God? As we would say that Jesus is God, do we also say the Holy Spirit is fully God? And the bishops said yes. And, and so, in a sense, you kind of have a, a developed understanding of the Trinity by the end of the fourth century. And it's not, again, it's not like people got together and said, okay, let's vote on what we think the Trinity ought to be like. People said, no, we've been wrestling with these texts. We've been wrestling with these ideas. We have been involved in the, the work of preaching 
this, this gospel, we've been living this out in community, we've been doing our, our theological reflection, and we've been prayerfully considering how God calls us to understand him. And, and this is what is, has developed, in a sense. This is what has congealed over these centuries of us doing church. And, and so the church said, yeah, it's, it's key that we understand that Jesus is nothing less than God and he's nothing in his deity and he's nothing more than human in his humanity. We rejected other ideas like docetism, for example, which is that Jesus only seemed to be human, but he really wasn't. I mean, you had some of these false gospels where, where Jesus' feet literally didn't touch the ground. He was sort of, you know, hovering as he went along. And, and, and no, the, the church affirms because the gospels teach us Jesus was it is fully human. He didn't stop being fully human when he ascended from the dead. He is, lives eternally as fully God and fully human in a glorified body, and we're going to get one like his someday. But again, it's not like the bishops got together and voted on what they wanted this to be. The bishops came together and tried to understand what the church had received from God. And basically what we're saying is that the Holy Spirit was working through the church to illuminate what he had already in, given in inspired scripture. And so you get in 434, uh, Vincent of Lerain, who was French, has this classic statement uh, that, that Christian orthodoxy has three components, ubique, semper, and ad omnibus, that which is believed everywhere at all times, and by everybody. And of course, over that messy process of this doctrine congealing, there are always going to be times and places and people that didn't quite agree on every point of that, but that's part of the congealing process. That's part of, of, of in a sense, you think about how Michelangelo described making a statue. It's not like he decided what he wanted to make. It, he believed that there was this statue inside the marble, and he was just chipping away the stuff that wasn't supposed to be there so that the real statue could come out. And I think that describes how the bishops understand what they did. So, in light of the fact that these things have been believed basically everywhere at all times and by all faithful believing Christians, will you stand with me and recite with me these words of technically the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed? And after that, uh, we'll have communion. I'll invite you to come forward, uh, take the elements, bring them back to your seat. Uh, the red is wine, the white is grape juice, the bread is unleavened, and I do believe we have gluten-free, we will shortly have gluten-free wafers available as well for those with gluten allergies. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven 
and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come.